This is Minister in the Making, episode number 20. I'm B.T. Irwin. This is a podcast for church people, from the ones who stand in the pulpit every Sunday to the ones who just sneak in on the back pew once in a while. The mission of this podcast is to give church people a behind-the-scenes, inside look at life and Christian ministry. And your guide is my dad, Travis Irwin, who shares the stories and wisdom he collected from almost 50 years in full-time church work. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Dad was hitting his stride as minister to the Steel Avenue Church of Christ in Ashland, Ohio. The church was active, growing, healthy, and seemed to be avoiding some of the problems that some churches face. And Dad was happy too. He felt good about his family life, his spiritual life, and his work life. But even as all was going well, Dad was already making choices that would lead to difficulty and trouble in the years ahead. In this episode, Dad will talk about church culture and church habits and how they lead to church growth. And he'll also talk about how he chose to manage his own time and workload, and how he seemed to think that he didn't have any limits. Dad will take us behind the closed doors of elders' meetings. What goes on in there anyway? What is the minister's job when he sits in that room? This is uh, an episode that Dad and I actually recorded face-to-face in his living room. So it'll sound a little different from past episodes. And uh, you'll also hear my great-grandmother's clock chiming in the background. So you'll know exactly how long you've been listening to this episode. So let's get on with episode number 20. I call this one, I Pushed and Pushed and Pushed and Pushed. All right, so this is really weird because we've never actually done one of these in person before. Yeah, we're in person, face-to-face. Yeah. What's that going to be like? So, uh, that's different, and we're using different equipment, so I hope that... Picks us up. ...doesn't mess things up too much. Um, But yeah, we're sitting here in your living room, and we're going to be talking about kind of the late 1980s to early 1990s. And we're going to talk about that period of your work because of something you said a couple of episodes ago, I asked you when you hit your stride at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ. And you surprised me. Uh, you said 10 years. So like 10 years is, is where you really found your groove. And that kind of goes along with something you said in the very first episode that we recorded a long time ago where I asked you what was your best decade and you said the 1990s yeah. was your was your best decade, and so we're kind of getting into that period of your of your work with the Steel Avenue Church of Christ. So that's what we're going to be talking about um, today. And so I'll start with this: like, how do you know that you hit your stride around the 10-year mark? How do you know? Uh, the job, I don't want to say the job gets easier, but uh, seem to have more confidence in what I'm doing. We also have confidence in what we're doing. And uh, in the church, so far as outreach and ministry, and I just feel, I felt good about it. The people cooperated. There was a, a, still a spirit of uh, cooperation and work and unity. Um, you know, you know, things were improving. Uh, we were teaching and baptizing people. People were placing membership. It was just a, a very positive, very positive time. 
That doesn't mean we didn't have any issues or problems because you know everybody does. But things just seem to go very, very smoothly, at least to me anyway. And uh, I had lots. I had a lot of things on my plate at that time, but I enjoyed every every bit of it. And uh, part of it probably was that you children were growing up and you were get, getting more and more independent. And that helped us a little bit. It took some took some pressure off your mom and me where we could do some other things. That's not a that's not a criticism. That's just an observation. So, um, do you think that ten years, if it, if you hit your stride ten years in, everything else aside, the fact that you know I was a teenager by then, Michelle was was getting older. So, like you said, your kids being more independent meant that we had our own interests, and you didn't. Right. Know, that that freed you up a little bit to, to focus more on your work. Um, that putting that aside, do you think ten years is about normal for a minister hitting his stride with the church? Do you think it was? Do you think you hit your stride late? Do you think you hit it early? You've known a lot of ministers in your life, so you have, you have some ministers if they don't hit a stride, if they don't see some major change in their work for the good of the church in two or three years, they're out of there. Uh, I don't, I'm sure it's different for different guys, uh, but some of them have a lot of patience and stick around a long time, some of them don't. But in my case, you know, we had, the first five or ten years were good, yeah. and but the, the, the second ten years just took off, and, and maybe maybe got too comfortable, maybe got too easy, I don't know. <coughs> but in my case, it just, it just all kind of started falling, it, it all fell together years before, but it was just click, clicking away like a train going down the tracks, and uh, it was just a, just, a, just a good time, good time in our personal lives, good time at church. Um, you know, you have all the normal things like I talked about. You have loss, you have setbacks, but uh, you know we had some good leadership in place, uh, good teachers, uh, good involved people. We, we, were go- we were going through a time there where a lot of the women were going back to work. We lost a lot of our female power uh, in, in vacation Bible school, yeah. and so we went to went from a, a weekly VBS to a, I think to a nightly VBS, and we went to a Saturday. That was a that was an issue, but in spite of that, to me to me that was a setback. But to me, things were going well. People still had that that, that good attitude, that cooperative attitude. And they wanted. They were concerned about the good of the church. They were friendly to one another. They were friendly to the guests, the visitors that came in. They welcomed new members. Um, so I mean, we were, we were getting a little crowded about that time. I think we went to two services towards uh, the end of the century, but uh, we were just, you know, I said, clicking along and doing a good work. And that, that takes everybody. It doesn't take just the preacher. It takes everybody. Um. How would you compare the church at the end of the 1980s to the start of the 1980s? From the end of the 1980s to the start? Yeah, so wow. uh, you already said there was a lot of energy when you started there. Right. You know, in 81. Right. Uh, and we talk, you were told the story about when you moved in in Ashland, like all the people from the church showed up to help move in. Yeah. And that was different from your experience at the other two churches. That told you something about the members of the church. Right. So they were energetic people, and they wanted to pitch in and work. Right. How did you see them grow over the? How did you see the people of the church grow over the 
first 10 years that you were there? How did you see them change and develop as, as people and as Christians? Well, they, you know, they, they uh, grew uh, spiritually. They grew, they grew uh, more mature. Uh, they dealt with uh, some hardships in their own lives and the hardships of other people's lives. And they came, they always, they always came uh, uh, measured up to the occasion. When people needed them, they were there. Uh, we also had something called Brothers Keepers groups that were had been around for a long, long time, and that created camaraderie and fellowship and also was used as an evangelistic tool. But the people, when there was, when there was sickness, when there was loss, um, when there was some other issue, the members came to the rescue, uh, some more than others, of course, but that, that was a sign of spiritual growth. And these people uh, weren't going anywhere. Uh, the ones that were healthy anyway, yeah. and they weren't going anywhere, and they were they were just very solid, friendly, caring people. They're the ones who sent the, get, sent the get-well cards. They're the ones who made the visits. They're the ones who made the phone calls. They're the ones who took food to people. Um, they're the ones that showed up during the calling hours and the funerals when people passed away. And that's, you know, I don't know if that's a small town phenomena, I don't like to think it is. I think it's just a, a, a Christian phenomenon where these people uh, have kind of always been that way, but they've just have grown a little bit more mature in that area and continue to do it and maybe do it in a better way. That, that's just uh, that's my experience with them, with the people there in Ashland. So did you feel like as, a, as the minister who was preaching and teaching, Yeah. did you feel like uh, because the, the people at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ already did those things. Yeah. Like, that, that costs energy, money, and time to, like, make a meal for someone and take it to them when someone in their family has died or someone is sick. Like, everything you describe and everything I remember about that church, that, that took people's energy, money, and time sure. to be involved. Sure. And you brought up Vacation Bible School, <laughs> and uh, those are some of my best memories from childhood. And... and I remember some of the teachers and some of the volunteers, like the lengths to which they went to, to create a, a really amazing experience for us kids. So what I hear you saying is that you found that when you came there. Yeah, that's right. And, and that the people in that congregation continued to be that way. Mm -hmm. So as a minister, here's the question then. Did you feel like the congregation already had a lot of spiritual depth? And did that make you feel like you could focus more on evangelism and, and growing the church rather than deepening the church? You see what I'm asking? Well, as, as a preacher, you do both. You continue to hopefully help the people grow spiritually. And you also continue to be evangelistic. But the, I was never ashamed of inviting people to our church services because I knew the people would greet them, they'd be nice to them, they wouldn't say anything to embarrass us. I mean, they would always they would they would, they would do the right thing. They would do the kind, uh, benevolent Christian thing and welcome people. And that's why, I, I, you know, I you know, people will go to a church and may, they may like the preacher, but will they stay just for the preacher? They stay for I think they stay for the preacher, but I think they stay for the people. They stay for the ministries. So anyway, the people. And Ashland were that way when we got there. They were just very caring people, very open to other people, which is huge in a small yeah. town. That's very huge. Yeah. They were open and ready to accept people 
and that just continued on, continued on, and, and we were an evangelistic congregation. Uh, we brought, people brought visitors, we followed up on those. Um, and you know, we talked about that last time. But uh, Are the things that the people of the Steel Avenue Church, the things that they did on their, on their own, and the kind of people they were, are those things that can be taught by a minister who comes to a congregation? Or is that the kind of thing where the people either just have it and they do it, or they don't? It's probably a little bit of both. I think there are people that are just creative. Um, there are people that just are creative and think outside of the box. And, um, you know, love. When you love people, you come up with all kind of ideas of how to, how to serve them. Some of us need, need some help from others to be more to be more like that, I'm one of those people. I need, I need, your mom is very creative and she comes up with all kinds of neat ideas. And we learn a lot of stuff from people in Asheville that were creative. And I think some of that rubbed off on the other members. Um, and we would, uh, we would um, share those ideas with people. We'd put them in the bulletin. We would, I'd use illustrations from the pulpit to give people an idea of what they could do for others. And, uh, but, uh, Really, your creativity comes from, in my opinion, my experience, creativity, like I'm describing, comes from a, a few, yeah, some very, very special few people, mm-hmm. and that's not a criticism, that's just an observation. And there were people in Ashland that were very creative, and we, I learned a lot from them. That yeah. I, I use stuff today that I learned in Ashland. Like what? Uh, just like you know, we talked about. Um, uh, Talked about um, taking taking someone all over town, showing them around mm-hmm. town. Mm-hmm. You know, I never thought of that. You know, that's a great idea. I never thought of that. Somebody else had to do that. Um, taking them, uh, introducing them to people. I never thought of that. That's kind of sad that I say that, but it's true. But you know, getting people familiar with the church, sitting down with the church director like Dorothy Ables did with us, and uh, right filling it in and going over it with someone and, and telling them. Who everybody is, I mean, and I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. that. To me, that's just outside the box. That's creative as it can possibly be. But it's, you know, it's thinking. It's women are better at this, in my opinion, than men. Women think in the in concrete ways. Men think in, in the way of principles. You know, but women come up with concrete ways to do things, like take food over to someone. You know, I never thought of that. But I'm a man. What do I know, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, you find out what someone likes, and you you do something special for them. So they did a um, they did a was it fifteen or twenty five years? I think they did our twenty was it our twenty fifth wedding anniversary? I think they did there. Does that make sense? Uh, twenty five. That'd be yeah. two thousand six. And um, anyway, that was I never thought about it, doing anything like that. You send somebody a anniversary card and say happy twenty fifth anniversary. And but you know they some people do something even more special than yeah. just sending a card. They would uh, maybe uh, give them a gift card where they could take one another out for dinner or have a little party for them or something like that. Uh, we had surprise birthday parties. We had all kind of little things, things that I just don't think of. Did the did the what while you're describing all of this, and it was uh, your 25th anniversary was 1998, by the way. Not 2006. 1998. Okay, that makes and it was a surprise yes. party, and I know because uh, Michelle and I came home from 
school from college. Y'all came a long ways, surprise. yes. But um, as you were talking about all of the really extraordinary things that people in the Steel Avenue Church of Christ did for each other, you know, not just our family, but but for each other. And, you know, one of the, the things that keeps coming to mind for me uh, is uh, when Zachary Arnold was born. Yeah. And he was, I can't remember. He needed a liver transplant. He needed a liver transplant, right? Yeah. And uh, how the church, you know, prayed for that family and surrounded that family in a really special way for right. for years, right? right? Um, that that story always comes to mind when I think of the, the Steel Avenue Church of Christ. But you and I have talked some about uh, cliques, right? Yeah. Like in congregations, there are... Yeah. They're clusters of people that kind yeah. of stick together, and it's hard to, it's hard to get into those cliques. And I, I'm just curious. I was I was young in the '80s. I was a kid, sure. right? So um, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the adult world unless it affected me personally. Like, were there cliques? More were the cliques? If there were cliques at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ, were they about average for cliques that you would normally see in a congregation, or? I never really saw those as a kid, but as an adult at that time, were there clusters? Um, some time ago I did a study of what a clique was. A clique is a group of people that may be friends, usually they're friends, and the thing about it, what makes a clique a clique is is that it's, it's, it's exclusive. Got it. Yeah. And so now when you put that definition on it, it it uh, makes a lot of difference. In the case of Ashland, like any congregation, there were people that were closer to mm -hmm. others than others. Um, and I could rattle off a bunch of names, but I don't want to do that. And there, there's nothing wrong with having good friends uh, or even, you know, favorite people. You just got to make sure our favoritism does not, or having favorites does not make us biased when it comes to doing what's, what's good and what's right. But I don't, I don't remember any group of people that were good friends with one another that were exclusive. Mm -hmm. um, it, may, it may have existed, and I didn't, I didn't see it because I was busy in my own little world of church work. Uh, but but um, I mean, just watching people, uh, some, of the, some of the people that were best friends, they didn't necessarily sit with one another. Yeah. Now they did kind of congregate after services sometimes, but they would also speak to the guests and they would speak to the visitors and they would speak speak to different people. It wasn't like they <coughs> got to church and sat down front or sat in the middle somewhere and just sat there the whole time with one another and then after church they stood there and visited with one another to the church building. I never saw that, but I did see people that were close to one another uh, go home with one another, speak to one another, maybe sit, maybe sit with one another um, you know stuff like that, but but what my experience was in Ashland was there these these same people made it their business to make sure they spoke to a lot of different people and be friendly. And if there there was a guest, I mean these people, some of these people stood out in the vestibule before they sat down for worship. Mm -hmm. They were out there greeting people, mm -hmm. so they they were not exclusive. Did they have special times when they got together? I'm sure they did. Yeah. But they weren't exclusive. 
You, you see what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying, and that, that was what I was going for with the question, because I we, we had a conversation the other day about in churches where we've been, and there were, you used the word cliques more than once to, to describe groups of people that were yeah. closed. Yeah. Like they, I mean, people couldn't get into those groups. Yeah. And by the way that they kind of closed in around each other, they sent a pretty strong message that mm -hmm. we're only interested in, in, in being together. And that, so I, I, my follow-up question, uh, I have two follow-up questions to what you just said, because this seems to be a theme whenever you talk about the Seal Avenue Church of Christ. Uh, yeah, the congregation to which I have belonged for many years, one of the top complaints that I've heard repeatedly over the course of you know 15 going on 20 years is that people can come to that church and never be greeted wow or never you know never form a relationship with another person wow and can kind of bounce around for years um, and it's not just I think it has more it doesn't have to do with the fact that it's a large congregation so one of the things I remember about the Steel Avenue Church of Christ and what you described several times is that when people came to visit they were always greeted yeah yeah. And so, I mean, can you ever remember an instance at that church where someone complained about no one ever talks to me, I don't fit in here, there's nothing to do? I, I don't remember right now. Um, uh, every congregation uh, will deal with, uh, for lack of a better term, I use the word character, um, a person that maybe is just... Um, socially dysfunctional yeah. and that's a, that's a rare thing but it does happen and, or a person who has a reputation in the community that's not very good and we had um, at least one person I know but a couple three people that were that way and uh, just to be honest with you the the people at church were afraid of these people hmm. they were afraid they would be violent hmm. or hurt them or something like that and um uh, that was a difficult time for our church when that was happening. Yeah, you you know you have that uh, that person, people just are just afraid of them. Yeah, afraid of her, and they stay away. But generally speaking, um, Ashland to me Ashland was an open community, but the church was open, and uh, I could rattle off names of people that <clears throat> went out of their way to speak to people. I mean, their family was sitting right there. Yeah. I mean, their family's right there. You know, they could they could sit down and just plop right down beside their family, wait for church to start, and you know, sit there the whole time, and at the end of the service, talk to their family and go out to eat together. But that's not what they did. They they went and talked to people. I'll share a funny story with you. We had a lady in our congregation, and I'm gonna call her Sister Jones. That is her real name. Very sweet lady. She was one of the charter members when the church was in Nankin, Ohio. Sweet lady, loved, loved her dearly, great lady. Her daddy was a preacher mm. and had preached. But anyway, she was a member of our congregation and uh, she had her own pew and she had her own pillow and it was about halfway up on the right side facing the pulpit. And when she came in, she, came, she did not come for Sunday school, but she came between Sunday school and church. And when she came in, if someone was sitting in her seat, they had to move. And she was quite simply said that she was she would stand right there. Many times she would introduce herself. She was a friendly lady, a sweet lady. She was not 
a mean lady, she was a very sweet lady, <laughs> but she would stand at the end of the pew and look at the people sitting there. And they would look up, you know, say, hi. And sometimes she would introduce herself, but most of the time she would simply say, that's my pew. Yeah. And that's my pillow. And, <laughs> and if they're members, you know, the members knew. Yeah. You don't sit there. You yeah. don't sit in Sister Joan's pew. But if you're a guest, you know, uh, you, had a, you had a choice. Are you going to become uh, irritated by this lady? Or are you going to say, excuse me, we'll, we'll move down or whatever? And most people just move down. Yeah. And that's the way she was. And, uh, you, know, for the, you know, she was the only one that I know that I remember right now. There may be others that, I, that, that I've, I've forgotten about that did that sort of thing. And she was not a mean lady. Um, I consider her a very dear friend. And when she passed away, it was a very sad day for me, for yeah. the church too. But uh, you know, you have you have those kind of people in the church. They have a certain pew, they have a certain place they sit. Some of them have their own pillow there. They may even have their name on the pillow. I don't know. But she was not that way. Yeah. We we just we just didn't have a lot of that. We just we just people. You have people that come and they're nice, and they'll speak to you. Then you have people that are come that are nice, that will go out of the way to speak to you and make you feel welcome and invite you back and maybe the next time they see you they'll call you by name mm -hmm. and that's that's kind of what we that's kind of the general rule that we had in our congregation that people it wasn't a rule we made it just what people did yeah and uh a lot of those people i will say this a lot of those people started passing away mm -hmm. and uh, that's a sad thing because sometimes someone doesn't pick up the ball and run with it yeah i i hate to say it but i i feel like a lot of what you're describing can't be taught no at least not overnight because people people who spoke to you I, I went through a period of time probably when I was getting close to early teen years where I was really annoyed every time I went to church because of all the people who wanted to talk to me adults right you know like passing through the lobby I couldn't pass through the lobby or walk to my pew without uh, without adults wanting to stop me and, and ask me how I was doing or, or have a conversation with me. Yeah. And, um, and so looking back on that now, I think that's remarkable for a couple of reasons. One, what I've seen in a lot of churches since I grew up is, is a, a segregation by age group. It happens. Yeah, right? It happens, sure. And... Uh, <clears throat> You know, so the teenagers and the young people all are over here doing their thing separate from. Right. Uh, I just had a conversation with with some fellow members of our church recently, where we talked about when we were kids, old people spoke to us. We interacted with old people a lot in our church. There's no there's wow. no interaction. So I, I think it's remarkable true. that all these people wanted to talk to me whenever I walked in the building, and it got on my nerves, <laughs> right? Boy, but yeah. it's also remarkable because they actually were interested in in me so you can teach people in a church to greet visitors right hey welcome to our church here's a bulletin you know our usher will show you to us you know here's a here's a gift for being our visitor today that kind of thing you can teach people to do stuff like that but you can't really teach people to actually be interested in somebody yeah. and yeah. Uh, and want to know how they're doing like for real and I yeah. feel like and maybe I'm skewed because I was the preacher's kid and everybody knew me but at that congregation I my memory is 
people really were interested in you. Yeah, they were really happy to see you, and they really wanted to know how you were doing. And they, true. they really were going to take part in your life if you gave them a chance. And well, I don't think that can be taught. Well, you know, some of it, <coughs> excuse me, some of it, <coughs> some of it is personality. Some people are outgoing and spontaneous and friendly, and some of us <coughs> are quiet people and we're uh, kind of reserved and we don't push ourselves on others. I'm not saying the other people do, but some people are just naturally friendly and outgoing and, and not afraid to go up and talk to a total stranger. Some of us um, won't do that in a million years. So you got to keep that in mind as well. But uh, a lot of it's taught, it's taught biblically, but it's also taught by model. Yeah. And uh, if, you're, if your parents were friendly and outgoing, it's probably a pretty good chance you're you're going to be that way too, especially when it comes to church and greeting people yeah. and making everybody feel welcome. I, I'm, we're going to do a whole episode where we talk about the dominant personalities in the congregation and people mm. that had a a lot of influence. I mean, right now my head is I'm thinking about we've talked about the Kurs before. Right. There were so many Kurs in that church. Right. And the Kurs, as a family, had this certain personality about them, which was really outgoing, friendly, kind of laid back. You know, um, you, we've already talked about John and how he befriended you when you came there. Right. And so, you know, that was a multi-generational family that was large. Yeah. And I think, you know, a family like that being in your church, that family just being who they were as a family is going to rub off on other people in the church. And they intermarried with other families, the other large families. Um, so it, it's it's like it's taught, but I feel like it's more modeled generation after generation, and like people in the congregation just pick up on it. And they're like, "Oh, this is how we are here. This is what we do here," yeah. without a minister having to say, "We're going to do a class on hospitality." You yeah. know. Yeah. Um. So I want to ask you what you what you preached and taught because uh, we've talked before about how preachers in the Church of Christ might stay at a congregation only until they've preached through all their material and then they, they move on to a new congregation and start over again. And you were at Westside for five years, about five years. Um, and so by the time you got to the late 80s, you had blown past that five-year mark at Steel Avenue Church of Christ. So you had to start coming up with all new material, right? Right. So uh, talk about your preaching and teaching during the late 80s, early 90s? Well, that's a long time ago. <clears throat> um, there's always the doctrinal sermons, always deal with the issues. The, the, the hardest part was to, to determine what are you going to do on Sunday morning and what are you going to do on Sunday night so far as preaching. What I, you know, I'd, I'd listen to people, I'd talk to people, they asked me questions. Um, and you, you know, there are, there were certain needs in the congregation. There were certain things going on in the world. Um, you know, the, the big deal back in the '80s, I think, was ERA and women's rights and stuff oh, like that. Equal rights amendment. Yeah, equal rights amendment. You know, those kind of things kind of uh, had something to do with sermon preparation for for certain preachers. I don't know if I, I probably preached on it. Um, if there was an issue, a big issue in the church, I preached on it. Um, I preached on things probably 10 or 15 years ahead of everybody else. But seriously, you know, maybe 
a, a really good book comes out written by someone uh, that deals with some uh, not issues but some needs some real needs of people and it, it's very practical so I, so I would do topical preaching on that on that need and try to help people uh, sometimes I would uh, um, many times I would just do different topics um, they're called topical sermons yeah uh, like uh, instrumental music, uh, yeah, d divorce and remarriage, giving. Um, one of my favorite sermons was, uh, why do we do what we do in worship? And that was taken from uh, David. What's David's last name? David Roper uh, from his book um, uh, on uh, the day Christ came again. Uh, I, you know, I, just, I just pick up, pick up different sermon books sermon outline books, get, I, just, I got kind of all kind of ideas. I was constantly looking and reading, and people would recommend books, and then I, I would come up with, with topics. I can't uh, tell you exactly what those were. Towards the end of my tenure there, I started doing expository preaching. I wasn't comfortable with expository preaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, I always, did, I always did a lot of series. I did series sometimes yeah. with two sermons, sometimes with 12, sometimes with six. And when you do an expository series, you're basically taking a book of the Bible and you're doing several sermons. Yeah. So you do a series. I did a series on Romans. I did a series on Philippians. Those two I remember uh, vividly. I did a series on the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I did the Sermon on the Mount in Ashland probably four times. Mm -hmm. uh, before I left, I did a series on uh, uh, what are we doing here? In other words... Why did God put us here at this time in this place? Why did God put us here on earth? I took off from Rick Warren's book uh, by a similar title. And uh, I just did a series. Basically, that's how I wanted to close with Ashland. I wanted to, to remind them, this is why you're here. You're here to do this, 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 and this. And uh, I, 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 felt like I'd, I felt like I had preached the whole counsel of God because I'd done Old Testament preaching, New Testament preaching, topical preaching and doctrinal preaching and issue preaching I did a lot of uh, exhortation exhortations where you take a verse uh, like 1 Corinthians 16 13 and 14 uh, watch ye stand like men be strong let all you do be done in love and you have four points it's just a just an encouraging sermon to, to encourage people to be faithful to continue to serve the Lord so you know I, I, I did it all um, most of my sermons are gone they're in the city dump and um, I think Athens, Tennessee is where I, I got rid of 60 boxes of stuff. Wow. I got probably 20 left. Uh, I had to, it was tough throwing out sermons. So why would you do it? Didn't have room for them anymore. Uh, and, I, and, of course, I wasn't in preaching anymore yeah. when I moved to Athens, so I just didn't feel like I needed them. What, was there any difference between your preaching in 1981 and in 1991? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Hopefully, I was doing a better job in 1991. I was meeting more needs in 1991. So, were, did you, when you talk about meeting more needs, everything you've described so far, it sounds like your preaching and teaching, you shaped it around, you were, you were responding. It was more responsive to what you observed in the church or what people Some of it. asked you Some of it. directly. Yep. Um, as opposed to you wanting to get the church to think about something or you wanting to shape the church's thinking on a particular thing? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I did both. Yeah. I did both, especially towards the end. I did, I, I, like I said a while ago, I wanted, I wanted to think a certain way. <laughs> Boy, if, <clears throat> if they didn't think that way by the time I was leaving, why should I even try again? In what way was that? <clears throat> uh, back to um, why, are we, why are we here? Okay. Why did, God, why did God put us on earth? And why did God, um, wh why are we Christians? What are we supposed to be doing as Christians? What are we supposed to be doing as a church? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, kind of like Moses when he was saying goodbye to everybody in the book of Deuteronomy. He basically said it three times, maybe more, but I know definitely three times. He said, "Be faithful, or else." Basically, be faithful or else. And that didn't say it quite that way, but it was, you know, be faithful. He be, did say it that way. <laughs> yeah, be fruitful. You know, serve the Lord. Hang in there. Hang tough. Persevere. Uh, be, you know, trust the Lord. Uh, endure, endure hardship, endure to the end, and that's that, that should be that should always be that should be something that should be preached all the time. But I definitely wanted to preach that before I left there. What was on the congregation's mind though in the at the ten year mark for you? So if you were responding to what people asked you uh, and what you observed in the congregation at that point at the ten year mark for you. What were people asking you? What what were they struggling with? What did they want to know? That was kind of a that was kind of the issue time. There are a lot of issues. Okay, like what? Uh, I could probably remember them, but I, I'll I'll let you remember them. You know, do, we call them doctrinal sermons or issue sermons. Any, anything from baptism to instrumental music, instrumental music to uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage to deacons, elders. Um, the organization of the church, the name of the church, um, things of that nature, um, qu qu doctrinal questions. Um, boy, I tell you, it's been so long ago I can't even remember. But it, it was still some of that stuff. Yeah, it was kind of a bring over from Akron, the cat is. And uh, I, was st I was still trying to grow. I was still trying to grow as an individual. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I know. I knew I needed to move on. I thought you can't preach. You can't preach this stuff all the time. People can't grow just hearing this stuff. Yeah, maybe they need to hear it. But why do they want to hear it? That's well. I don't. I, think that's I, don't, I don't even know if they even had a choice. To be honest with you. Well, I mean, if if people wanted to know about those things, if people ask those questions, which I think I remember, you know, the topical sermons and the kinds of classes that we had. You know, if people are asking about the name of the church or worship style or divorce and remarriage uh -huh. what what motivated people to ask those kinds of questions because there was somebody in their family that was going through some yeah thing like that especially in the area of divorce and you know the divorce uh, in our nation was becoming easier and mm -hmm. easier and it concerned members of the church that they had family members that were getting divorces. They thought their souls were in jeopardy because of that. So that's why that came up. Were there any real, were there any real controversies in that congregation at that time? There were no, there were no divisive controversies. Okay. Uh, that church had had some history of division yeah. and break-offs. And um, uh, I know at least 
at least one or two of those breakoffs did come back. Uh, but but they they hated division. They hated it, and um, hated to see it happen. Let me turn the thing off. But anyway, they hated to see it ha happen, and, and they were they they we like so we didn't we never had any fights about anything like yeah. that. Never. There was a. Um... The first controversy that I can remember at that church where I feel like things kind of broke out into the open was over church camp songs. Oh, church and, camp songs. And clapping. Now, this is probably taking us into the, you know, mid-90s. Uh, I think I was probably in college when that became an issue and I may have heard about it secondhand but um, there were people that wanted to sing the church camp songs yeah. and you know with all with the clapping and everything like that and I, I seem to remember there was um, there was pushback and some unhappy people and that's the first real full-blown controversy that I can remember. So as a preacher, the, the question I'm asking is not about that, but like when something like that happens and you've got people in the congregation that take, you know, both sides, like how do you, obviously you're expected to talk about it. Everybody wants to know what you think about it. How do you handle a situation like that? I didn't, I didn't have to handle it. Um, the elders handled that. The, the elders just, I think the elders probably talked to the song leaders and they probably talked to certain people and they may have even made an announcement. Um, I'm not sure of all the details right now, but we, it's just like um, the attitude was, okay, we'll, we'll cooperate with whatever, whatever the elders decide on this, we'll cooperate. And we never had, <clears throat> that I remember someone leaving over that or getting really upset and being divisive about it talking about it among the mem other members we just did, we didn't have that um, how, it, how it would be handled today I don't know I think the church has changed a little bit since then I think we're more open yeah to what we call praise songs right and uh, some churches clap a lot yeah and they don't have a problem with it but that was early, that was early during those days of, of that kind of thing and they the, the elders handled that and it, it, we went on yeah so speaking of the elders, what was it? What was it like working with the eldership there in the late '80s, early '90s? I basically worked with two or three different elderships. The core, the core men were, of course, Ray and Graydon and Roger, that were elders when I when I first came there. Yeah. <clears throat> Graydon stepped down later when Dorothy died. That left Roger and Ray, and then that I think that's probably when. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly when Ron and Dave and Dick and uh, Huey came in, but they came in somewhere in there. I got it written down here. But they came in, and that was kind of a second eldership I worked with. And uh, it was it was interesting, to say the least. I mean, we had some younger guys in there. Not that Ray and uh, Roger and Graydon were old. They weren't old when I got there. They were, they were young men. They were a generation ahead of They were a generation ahead of me. They're my dad's generation. Yeah. But then the, the four new elders were my generation, and uh, <clears throat> took a lot of notes. That's for sure for elders meetings. 
and uh, it went <clears throat> it went okay. It went fine. It went good. It, it, it was a smooth transition, and um, we got along well. Uh, there were some changes that were made. You know, good decisions were made. Uh, no, no big upheaval. No, no, no big deal. No big. Um, there was no big um, adjustment uh, to these guys coming in. Then, of course, the last eldership that I worked with probably was um, I think Russ Hawthorne had joined them, and uh, I think there were seven elders for a brief period of time. Then he stepped down. So that was that was interesting. <clears throat> um, you were. Uh, I, that's when I started to become aware of your stress level around elders meetings. Yeah. So as I was getting in the late 80s, as I was getting to be about 10, 11, 12, I knew that elders meetings stressed you out. Yep. Like you were, if mom told me, like on a Sunday afternoon, you had elders meetings. You used to have elders meetings at like five or something. On Sunday afternoons, and it later moved to Monday night, and then there were Monday nights. Yeah. So, you know, Mom would uh, like on a Monday night or or, a, or a Sunday afternoon, your stress level would be high. Mom might say, "Well, your dad's at an elders meeting," uh -huh. and I'd be like, "Ooh, Dad's in a he's he's going to be stressed out." You yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what was so stressful yeah. about elders meetings? Because that was the highest strung that ever ever saw you was elders meeting day? Uh, I think there was a, two or three things. I think part of it was my personality. Uh, I'm a type A personality. Um, I get upset over things I shouldn't get upset over. Uh, that's part of it. That's not all of it. That's part of it. Part of it is immaturity. Part of it um, was I kind of lived in the fear of getting fired. I, I lived in fear of that for 45 years of ministry. That what is would be all. the... That is a horrible way to what live. What would be the reason that they would fire you? Like in your mind, living in fear of being fired, what reason do you did you think that they would give? Saying the wrong thing, speaking out of turn, okay. um, doing something uh, foolish. Usually, boiled down to saying something foolish or doing something foolish. I mean, I was just working myself to like death. Like from the pulpit. From the pulpit, or, and, I, and I've been corrected. Yeah. I've been corrected by that elders by those elderships. Um, I've been corrected, and rightfully so. So you know, say something from the pulpit, uh, making a decision without them, which was very rare. I knew better than that. Um, I was very careful what I said to the members about things. Not that I had anything to hide or anything was bad. It's just that that sometimes the elders preferred to make the announcement. Yeah, and that. That's what it should be. Um, sometimes, you know, making the spending, I didn't spend much money, but if I spent money, um, I, didn't, I really didn't spend much, much money. Um, I didn't have a credit card, I didn't have a budget, uh, even though I had a budget for the church office. Um, but, you know, doing something off, doing something foolish, um, I really was very, very careful. I ran pretty much everything past the eldership. I mean, except buying a pencil or something like that or buying paper. I just ran around it by them just to make sure it's okay. Was that the expectation they set and held you to or is that what you brought with you? That's probably what I brought with me. Is that a holdover from um, 
you know, I, I do want to ask you about saying something out. I'm sure every preacher is nervous about preaching on certain topics okay. and how it can go over. Yeah. Um, and you kind of touched on that, but is we we talked a little about how you used to call your dad, even yeah. though you were grown. Yeah. Right. And right. ask your your dad for his opinion on everything you did. Yeah. Um, and you talked about for 45 years you were afraid of getting fired. So you had this kind of fear relationship with elderships. Is yeah. that baggage that you carried with you from, you know, you talk about how controlling your dad was? Like Ray and Roger and Graydon, we talked about, were of your dad's generation. Right. They were right. like father figures to you. Right. So did you carry that, that, um, did you kind of look at them as father figures and. Could be. Could in a be. way. I never thought of that, but I, it, it it could be. I had a I was I was trained <clears throat> to respect the elders' position. Yeah. That they had the final say in everything, except for Jesus, he has the final say of everything. But but I was I was taught that, and uh, in my fear of losing my job, I made sure that I would not do anything that would help me uh, would contribute to losing my job. That's why I always asked permission for everything to a fault and I think that was my idea I don't know if it was I don't think it was their idea but I think they got used to it yeah and I never was corrected they never that I that I can remember they ever said you don't have to ask us about that and they may have done that about specific matters you know don't ask us about that just go ahead and do it yeah but uh, if it involved you know I I, I was, I guess I was just fearful. And that, that's, that's a horrible thing to be as a preacher, is to be fearful. You shouldn't be fearful. You should respect the position of an elder. You should respect them, but be afraid of them? I don't think so. Um, they would not like that. No, we, we should not be afraid of each other. But for whatever reason, whether it was my dad or some crazy thing I thought of in my head, I never thought of you as at that, you know, watching you and your relationship with the elders in that time. I, I thought of them as the bosses and you yeah. as the employee. Yeah. And I don't know that that's the way it's supposed to work. So I'm asking, no. did you ever feel like their peer and their colleague, like you're on their team and you're all working on this together? Or did you feel more like their paid employee who was there to you know do what you're told and ask permission and well well when we were playing golf I felt like I was uh, a peer when I was in an elders meeting I felt like I was an employee yeah and I'm asking was that something that you brought into the elders meeting it's, like it's probably something that I brought in brought in yeah you know um just for the benefit of those who are listening, if you're an elder, you can reinforce that by by uh, treating someone like an employee. Yeah. Uh, and some sometimes you just need to say say you know we're on a team, we're together. Yes, you are employed by the church. We understand that. However, but we're family, we're brothers, we're friends, and uh, we're the elders. You're the preacher. We understand that. However, but uh, but it, it, that could that that you know, if, if, if a preacher feels like his elders are his employee, 
an elder has a, the elders have a decision, am I going to reinforce that or am I going to say, no, that's not what this is. You're part of the team. You're the evangelist. We have the elders. We have deacons. We have Bible class teachers. We have members. We're all part of the same team. We're, in some sense, we're all, in fact, the Bible says we're all equal. Well, we all have different roles, but we're all equal. There were many times when I felt like that, uh, especially in elders' meetings and in official capacities, I was the employee. Yeah. Now, whose fault was that? I don't want to cast blame, but it's probably me. That's just the way I think, and uh, maybe that was wrong. But anyway. I get the impression that you weren't vocal in elders' meetings. Like, I think you described it before as like taking notes. Like, so when you were sitting in these elders' meetings, how much did you talk, and how much did you just listen and answer questions that they they but put to you? Basically, I spoke when I was spoken to. Got it. Now there there were times when I saw elders discuss something, and that kind of drove me crazy because sometimes they came to a conclusion, and sometimes they didn't. Mm-hmm. And that's just part. That's a part of discussion. You you got to have that. That kind of drove me a little crazy. I always wanted to put my two cents in. But they didn't ask me for my two cents. So you never offered it? Very, 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 very rarely. Yeah. See, you know, when I put my two cents in, and this goes back to getting fired, when I put my two cents in, usually it's because I disagree yeah. with one of those five or six guys, yeah. or seven guys. And I sure don't want to do that because I may get fired if I disagree with somebody, yeah. or disagree with the wrong one. So many times I just simply wouldn't speak. and. Uh, Maybe I'd speak to one of them outside of the meeting, and that may be the cowardly thing to do. But that's just that was my nature. That was my personality. I don't have a, I don't have an extroverted personality. Uh, I don't have a strong personality, uh, and that that was you know that was part of the problem or part of, part of the situation. Yeah, I wonder I because of the way that Church of Christ congregations are organized, you know, elders are people who you assume have been part of the congregation for a long time. Right. They know the, the people, right. right? And the people know them. They're not hired hands, they're real shepherds, right? And they, you don't elect an elder, you recognize an elder. This is a shepherd among us. You know, we, we recognize him as a, as a shepherd. So for somebody, for 31-year-old Travis Irwin who comes in the summer of 1981 and doesn't know anybody, there's those elders, those three elders that brought you in. I mean, they are, they're part of that congregation for a long time. Right. But at what point do you think a minister who's, who's been with a congregation for a long time needs to start becoming a, recognized as a peer and a contributor in the leadership, making decisions? Probably immediately. But it, it becomes more so as he's involved in the lives of the people. He knows the people. Yeah. And he can share things with uh, the eldership about the people. Uh, not to break any confidences, but to, to kind of educate them on what the needs of the people are so they can start meeting those needs in some way. That, that, may, be, that may be two years, it may be five years, it may be ten years. Definitely after 20 years, for crying out loud. You know, he, he is the pre. The, it, it's kind of sad, but. The, the elders will agree with me. Members will go to the preacher before they go to the elders. It is frustrating to them, and I know it is. But, you know, they if it's that way, then they need to uh, 
listen to him. He has something good to say, something helpful to say, I should say, useful to say, about the various members so they can be in touch. I tried to do that. I tried to do that everywhere that I went, especially in Ashland. Um, and of course, I tried to keep the membership uh, uh, educated on what was going on in the lives of people that, as much as I could, as much as I was allowed. So that's, that's the way I did it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would do it with a little notes. Sometimes I would do it with something from the pulpit or something in the bulletin to let the brethren know, let the elders know, so they can, they can respond to it in some way. Yeah. As time went along, more and more people went to the elders, which I was really glad to see. Yeah. yeah. How, uh, I feel like at some point, I started to observe, as I got older, I started to observe what I would call now passive aggression in you. Okay. Where I knew you were frustrated or upset about things. Okay. Um, and I would see it squeeze out, uh, you know, at home. Uh, occasionally you'd get worked up in the pulpit, right? And I'm, I was like, I'm pretty sure he didn't rehearse that, right? So because you were so hesitant to... It, like because you're in elders meetings you would speak only when spoken to yeah I mean do you think that you started to develop some passive aggression you I made a comment a minute ago about you were you were working really really hard right at that time so you right. were very busy you know we, I've already made the quip about vacation Bible school was amazing but Michelle and Bethy and I knew to avoid you during VBS week because you were the goofy guy in the Hawaiian shirt to all the kids in the auditorium, but you were, you were a bear. You were in a terrible mood the rest of the time, you know, because you were running a VBS and you were probably also doing all the things you normally tried to do at the same time yeah. that week. Um, so the question, you know, are, did, did you, because you weren't speaking directly to the elders in elders meetings, you were speaking only when spoken to. Yeah. What were there seeds of passive aggression and um, starting to, to be planted during that time? Did, Pro did you start to feel anything inside that started to kind of press you emotionally that you didn't get out? Um, let me describe burnout real quick. The, the, fir the first stage of burnout is excitement, mm -hmm. where you're excited about your new work. And you, your second stage is where uh, something happens or doesn't happen and you get just a little disillusioned and the third step is is anger and uh, and you get angry about those things that just didn't work out the way you thought they should and then the, the fourth stage is apathy to where you say I don't care anymore hmm. and those are the you know, I, I think there's a fifth stage in there but I can't remember what it is right now but that's kind of the stages I went through in Ashland um, and whose fault is that? I'm raising my left hand. I'm raising my right hand. It was my fault. I did not handle things correctly. I should have been more, uh, not forceful, I don't like that word, but should have been more honest and said, I need, I need, here, here, I need to have my opinion to her as well. And I need to, you know, I need, I need, I needed to say things like, you know, this meeting is going on to 11 o'clock tonight. You don't need me here. I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. Things like that. I, I, I prefer to be holding a Bible study, but I, I didn't do that. And uh, so it's not their fault that I was passive-aggressive, but I became more and more passive-aggressive. Where I was passive with them, when I got home, I was aggressive. 
and I unloaded on you on your mother and your ch you children. This is true. And uh, and I and I apologize. I hope your sisters are listening. And I apologize to those elders. I mean, you know, I w and 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 later later I sent them a letter and said I, I lied to you, especially when you said, "Are you okay?" And I said, "Yes." Well, I wasn't okay. I wasn't okay. So I've apologized to them for that. You were okay. So you went through the stages of burnout, and this is kind of where I want to end right. up on this conversation. Okay. Because at the 10-year mark, you were hitting your stride. You said the best decade for you was the 90s. Yeah. So when we when we started the 90s, uh, I remember that uh, that's when we knocked out a couple of walls. Yeah. Classroom walls. You know, the classrooms were off the side of the auditorium. Right. And and we knocked out some walls to, and put in some more pews. Right. So that we could fit more people. Right. In the auditorium, so you know I could look with my eyes and see that this church is growing. We don't have enough room in here for everyone to find a seat who wants to to, to come to church. So you know, ten years in, the church is growing. We've talked about how everything was, you know, maybe not humming like a like a, a top, you know, spinning like a top. But I mean, the growth was there. People were involved. There was energy. Um, everybody could see it. So as you were looking at the congregation at that 10-year mark, what were you foreseeing for the future? And you got to go back. You got to go back to the early 90s now. Um, were you seeing, hey, we are about to take off? Or were you seeing, I don't know if I can do this? Or were you seeing both? I mean, what, what was your vision of the future at that point? I, I was hoping that we would continue to, um, to grow. I, I didn't, you know, we didn't start talking about another church building until, what, the mid-90s or the late 90s? Um, that, that never entered my mind, really, that I remember. But we were... We were wanting to. I thought you just need to keep this going, keep yeah. this going, keep this going. And there were there were times when I had doubts. Could I could I handle this? Well, that that's the that's the the main question right there. In order to keep it going, yeah. Did you feel like it was up to you, or did you feel like did you feel like you had all the pieces in place to keep it going, or did were there things that you felt like you still needed to find in order to keep it going? Well, you got to remember we also hired a second man. Okay. Several second men. Yeah. That they were supposed to help us in those in certain areas. Jeff Rich was was the guy who came in about that. Right. Time. Right. Hey. Come on in. Are you done? No. We're live right now. Um. So you uh, you talked about a second a second man as we always called it right. a second man maybe somebody would come in and help out. So we did get a second man while I was in high school. That was the early 90s. Um, what else did you think that it was going to take to... Keep it going? To keep it going. Don't know. Don't know. I can't remember a thing right now. Just keep just keep pedaling hard and fast as I can go. Did you think you were going to have to work harder? Yeah. And did you know that you couldn't? Or did you think you still could? I still th thought I could. You thought you could do more? Yeah. Yeah. That was foolish. Why did you think you could do more? Because I, I was already doing a lot. Yeah. And um, basically, my philosophy of work was pedal to the metal. 
Uh-huh. Don't look back. Just pedal to the metal. Just force. I force myself to do a lot of stuff. Did I want to do it? Yes, I wanted to do it. Yeah. It's, that's not what we're talking. We're not talking about a, an impure motive. My motive was pure, at least it was to me, and that is just work harder, just push it, push it, push it, push it, push it, push it. And I pushed, and I pushed, and I pushed. You know the rest of the story. One day my body and my mind says, yeah. no more pushing. We're done. Who else was pushing? Nobody was pushing. I had people had people come to me and said, you need to back off. You need to slow down. And I was, I was polite about it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your concern. Yeah. But you don't know what you're talking about. I didn't say that to them, but I was thinking, you don't know what you're yeah. talking about. Your mother knew what she was talking about, definitely. And she just, she just watched me crash and burn. Did, she, did you think anyone else could do what you were doing? Was it a matter of you didn't want to impose on other people? Or did you think that you were the only one who could do it? This is going to sound self-contradictory. I thought that nobody else would do it. Uh, in other words, the people were working. Don't misunderstand. Yes. But they would not. They would not hold a campus ministry. They would not. They would not visit a hundred retired people every year. They would not hold Bible studies on Thursday night. They would not do Financial Peace University, which other people did do, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know. You know. They. You know. They. They wouldn't do, do this. There was a time when we had a member of the church. And he came up to me with the church bulletin. He said, there's something wrong with the bulletin. I said, what's wrong with it? He said, it's got your name in it too much. See huh. Trav, see Trav, see Trav, see yeah, Trav. Yeah. You're in charge of too much stuff. Yeah. And he was a good friend, and uh, he was correct. But I, was, I, wanted, I, wanted to see, I wanted to see Ashland do well and succeed. And that's wrong. The, the goal should be for the church to be faithful. But I've learned that since then. But you know, I wanted the church to succeed and do well grow and develop so forth and so on and I, I had in my mind how to do it and I did it and in the process uh, I was it was very unfair to the leadership it was unfair to the membership it was unfair to your mother and it was unfair to you children and it was unfair to me but also it wasn't doing it God's way mm. that's the biggest mistake I made well two mistakes one was that the other mistake is that I wasn't totally dependent upon the Lord like I should have been. So last question, what would you do different? I would, I, would, I, have, I do things different now. I depend upon the Lord totally for everything. I trust Him explicitly. I do my job, let everybody else do their job or not do their job. Do my job, let them do their job or not do their job. It's not Their, their job is not my responsibility. That's their responsibility. I'm responsible for me and what I'm responsible for. That's the long and short of it. Life's a lot better when it's that way. That's God's way. People are less likely to get hurt. The church is less likely to be hurt uh, by that kind of thinking. You've got to set boundaries. But above all, you've got to depend upon uh, Jesus. He is the power source. He, well, Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Buddy, I live that, and that is true. So we've got to walk with him. We've got to have that relationship with him. We've got to plug into him. And if we do, you know, that's part of faithfulness. It's a part of fruitfulness. The Lord's going to bless our efforts.
Thank you for being part of the Minister in the Making podcast. I hope the last hour was well worth it for you. Now, if you're getting inspiration or wisdom from these podcasts, please share them with someone that you think will gain just as much inspiration and wisdom from them. Maybe an elder or a fellow church member or a minister, uh, anybody really. And also don't forget to leave a good review on whatever podcast service you use. Next time, Dad will talk about how the death of just one member of the Steele Avenue Church of Christ changed everything about his ministry and the trajectory of the church. What made this one member so crucial to the life of the church? Find out next time. And remember, if you want to ask Dad a specific question in a future episode, just email it to me at bt at btirwin.com. That's B as in Bradley, T as in Travis at btirwin.com. Meanwhile, if you want to keep up with Dad's health and treatment for cancer, you can click on the link to his CaringBridge page in the show notes. Until next time, grace and peace.